I'd invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to the 145th Psalm, Psalm of David. And I'm going to be reading uh, this text, a long psalm, 21 stanzas, out of the English Standard Version translation. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and bless your name forever and ever. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your, shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now this next part is in the ESV, it's in the NIV, It's based upon some of the oldest translations or manuscripts. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask for your Holy Spirit uh, to be the one who truly teaches us this morning from the Scriptures. And we would pray that we would give attention to your word. And that by hearing your infallible, inspired, inerrant word, We would be built up in our holy faith that we would serve you as you've called us to serve you, to live our lives in such a way that we would bring all glory and honor and blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by recognizing the fact that every new year people take stock or seem to take stock of things. Uh, This seems to be a a normal kind of thing that human beings do. It's very, very human. It's even very Christian for us to consider a new year and to think about what does this new year have for us and 
with respect to this new year, what might I do? The same that has been blessed by God in the past, perhaps do differently in terms of directions that I should grow in my relationship with Christ. Now, I I want to begin, though, this particular sermon with the ending of last week's sermon uh, on New Year's Eve, which was sort of the, the sermon to set at least my thinking, but I hope all of our thinking, with respect to our lives as Christians. We were recognizing the fact in in Solomon's uh, words that uh, the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes, that human life lived on the horizontal. Even as a believer in Jesus Christ, when you live on the horizontal, which means you're, you're living really in a worldly fashion. You're, you're living with your, your design, your purposes, your intents, based upon the here and now. And it might be good things in the here and now. We're not talking about things that are necessarily evil in terms of the here and now. But when you're living your life primarily, purposefully, with respect to the, the here and now, with respect to the horizontal plane of life, you will wind up where Solomon did, this philosophical, intellectual, spiritual journey of Solomon, who was a believer, But everything he does, everything he talks about is living life on the horizontal. Conclusion. Emptiness. Vanity. A life that was disappointing. A life that was ultimately disastrous. Recognition that living life in that way leads to, in the life of a believer, a sense that life is... Vain, purposeless, without significance, meaningless. Even for someone who believes in Christ, living that way will take us in that direction, wind up with those conclusions. The answer, ultimately, the lesson of Ecclesiastes is that you can't live as a Christian on the horizontal and ever expect your life to be really blessed of God or to experience the kinds of things which you were supposed to experience in Christ. You simply can't. And in fact, if if you say you're a Christian, and you live your life that way, on the horizontal, for the things of this world, it may ultimately wind up that you're not really a Christian at all. That you'll stand before God and say, I know you, and he'll say, but I never knew you. That can happen. It does happen. It has happened. The answer, really, out of Ecclesiastes is to look at the vertical. Life is meant to be Godward. Human life is meant to be God-centered. God put eternity into our hearts that we might think not of the horizontal only, but that we might reckon with the vertical, with God himself, and realize as Christians, life must be lived centered in Jesus. Our Advent messages were all designed to point us in that direction. We looked at the incarnation. We looked at the fact of the incarnation. It was truly God himself who came into this world for us. We looked at the the reason why the incarnation. Why did God become man? Well, it was so that he would pay the debt that we could not pay. A debt so great, only God himself could pay it, but God could only pay it if he became one of us as a human being, as a man who could suffer and die in our place. We looked at the means of the incarnation. 
We looked at the virgin conception, the virgin birth, to remember, to recognize, and to count on the fact that we serve a supernatural God, a God who works miracles, a God who's never stopped acting on our behalf in terms of the specific providences in the world and in terms of His grace so that we can count on God to be a God who answers prayer. Because God is a supernatural God. God works in our lives. And then we looked at the fact that Jesus came into this world in a way that the Apostle Paul describes as poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And to recognize that God came into this world in such a way that by his humbling of himself, him stepping down from glory to become one with us and one for us, that we gain everything that Jesus was willing to surrender for a season. We gain everything. We gain the glories of heaven as co-heirs with Christ in the life to come. Now, he did all of that so that we might be able to see that the horizontal life is empty. The vertical life. The life that's God-centered, that's lived for God, that's lived in Christ. That is the life that demonstrates our true purpose. And what is that true purpose? It's an extraordinary purpose. God has saved us and God has redeemed us that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ, which is salvation, that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, all of that is so that we would worship our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship. Because as Jesus told the woman at the well, Salvation is from the Jews. We know this. And those who worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth, Jesus said, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. Those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our salvation is to know Christ that we might live lives in which we worship God. So we begin this year recognizing that a self-centered life is really a self-worshipping life. And to realize that all of salvation is to move us from that so that we're looking up and we're seeing God, fixing our eyes on Jesus at the right hand of the Father, running the race fixed upon Him, recognizing we have this extraordinary purpose to live this way to live for Christ, to worship God. We recognize, the Scripture declares, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And either we do that by the, the wondrous power of His saving grace now and forever, or under his judgment, on the day of judgment, when all those who haven't honored him as Lord and God will be forced to, by the presence of the glorious God, before the judgment seat of Christ, and even against their wills, they will have to bow before Jesus and acknowledge him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, we begin this year knowing 
God's great purpose for why he saved us, God's great purpose for redeeming us, is that we would worship God through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so the question then, as we continue into this year, is, well, how do we do this? What does it really mean to worship God? What does it look like? Well, I'd like to say this, that the path and the pattern to worshiping God has never been far from you. Of course, it's in the scriptures, but it's never been far from you week by week by week by week when you've gathered with us because we put it in the bulletin every single week. Which is to say, we have set a pattern and path of worship every Sunday. It's a pattern that's biblical. It's grounded in the Bible's teachings about how we're supposed to worship. What are the essentials of godly worship? Which are, in fact, if you look at your bulletin, the, the key points of adoration of God, confession of our sin before God, supplication with respect to our needs, or thanksgiving for the grace of God, and supplication with respect to our needs before God, and then we would also add instruction in the Word of God and the benediction of God as we're sent out to serve Him. This month of January has four Sundays. And so we're going to look at the path and pattern of godly worship by taking each one of these Sundays and look at adoration today, confession next week, then thanksgiving, then supplication. Because I want us, as we go into this world, to be intentional and to be focused on the purpose, the extraordinary purpose that God has given to all of us as Christians. It doesn't matter what kind of day you're having. If you're only looking at the horizontal, it can be a very disappointing set of circumstances. But if you stop and you think, this day, this day is a day in which I can look up. I must look up. I should look up. My only hope is to look up. And to see God on his throne, Christ is the one who's interceding for me, and I am privileged to worship him. The days that we worship God count for all eternity. If you want significance and purpose in your life, worship God every single day. Well, that's what I want us to see. That's where I want us to go. That's what I want us to be thinking about as we go into 2018. So this morning... The overarching theme of this entire month, as we begin this morning, is this. Going back to last week's sermon, the beginning of this sermon, the empty life is to live horizontally. It is the vertical life in worship towards the true God revealed in Christ that is the life of real purpose with present and eternal value. So we begin with this first element in worship, the, the element of, of adoration. We're going to pose three simple questions. What is adoration? Why do we adore God? How do we do this? Now, I'm going to refer to something that Stu prayed toward the end of his supplication prayer as he was praying about our listening to the Word of God because I actually have the same notes here in my sermon notes. It's about a warning with respect to spiritual importance of what's going to be said and the power of the devil to distract us. The parable of the sower, the four, the four kinds of soil, remember? The first soil is where the Satan comes along and snatches up the word that is sown and it bears no fruit. Well, that tells us something about the activity of the devil whenever God's people come together. 
if he can't snatch the word totally out of our hearts, which he can't if we're born again by the Spirit of God, nevertheless, one of his subtle works and strategies is distraction. Distraction. To move us away from being attentive upon what the Holy Spirit would say to us through his word. Now, I'm not saying that so that somehow you will think in your hearts, well, um, if he were a better preacher, I would listen more closely or something like that. Now, it, it, it doesn't really matter. We have all listened to great preachers on the Internet or YouTube. We've all heard really incredible orators. And just like my wife did, you look at, you look at your watch. <laughs> she was looking for the date, she says. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about that later. Now, now my, many of us are easily distracted. So it's important for us to even pray as we begin. Holy Spirit, please enable me to hear your word. Protect me from what my enemy would long to do. Keep me focused on the truth that you would be presenting to me through the scriptures. The second thing, too, is most of us, uh, you know, the story that we, we talked about last week of Mary and Martha. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Martha was busy serving. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Most, most of us have a default setting that's like Martha. We want to be up and about and doing things. We want to be busy and active serving God. Very few of us have a natural disposition where we would see Jesus and sit at his feet and be willing to listen to him for a really long time, even Jesus. And so we have to pray, God, give us merry hearts first. Yeah, Martha's service is necessary, but what's first is being willing to sit and listen in the presence of God, to know him, to worship him, so we're actually then empowered to serve him, as we should. Now, this first question then about adoration. What is adoration with respect to the nature of worship? I'm going to take nothing for granted here, and here's why. I had a conversation during the Advent season with a friend. She's a long-time Catholic, even was a nun for a while. We were talking about Advent, you know, Christian to Christian. This is what she said. So actually it was a, an Anglican, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic having this conversation. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it, at the beginning of it? Now this is what she said, and she was as serious as you could possibly, possibly be. She said the most important part of worship was the adoration of the host. Now, if you have a Catholic background, you understand what I'm saying. During the celebration of the Mass, the priest will lift up the wafer and the cup, elevating the host. To a Catholic, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to her, adoration is to be focused upon the elements of what we would call the Lord's Supper and to be adoring those things. 
She was saying, and she said this boldly to us, that the greatest adoration, the most worshipful thing that any Christian could ever do was to partake in this manner of the host in Mass. Now, that's why we need a solid and biblical definition of worship. And, and, and that's why we should recognize and appreciate that we're children of the Reformation. We're Protestants. And we define our worship according to Scripture and Scripture alone. So what does Scripture teach us, first of all, about worship? Worship is mental. Worship is verbal. And worship is behavioral. It's, it comprises all of what we are. How we think, how we speak, how we act. It ascribes to God the full glory of who He is and what He has done. So worship is to think rightly about God, it's to speak rightly to and about God, and it is to behave and act properly towards God. Now all of this shows up in Psalm 145, but we can also see it in another psalm, Psalm 96, verses 7, 8, and 9. Listen to these words. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His court. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now, in those three verses, we have a mental understanding of who God is. We have a verbal description of who God is. And we have the worshipful behavior toward who God is, bringing an offering and even trembling in His presence. So that's, that's our understanding of worship. It's giving to God all the full honor and glory that's due unto His name in how we think and how we speak and how we act. Adoration. What is adoration specifically then in terms of being an aspect of what worship is? Well, adoration combines the language and activity, really the thinking and the language and the activity of love and honor. Now, let's recognize that when we combine these together as adoration toward God, the love that we're speaking of here is, in fact, a unique kind of love in the sense that no one else and nothing else is ever to receive this kind of love. And what do I mean by that? Following out the meaning of the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave that were actually Old Testament commandments, uh, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, which means to love God supremely, to love God ultimately, to love God above every other thing ever. Second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. There is a love that we have toward equals. All of us in the sight of God equally bear the image of God. We are all equals, and we're supposed to have a love for each other that is the same sort of love that we're to have with respect to ourselves, this natural kind of love. We're to regard others as valuable, as, as, as important as we value ourselves. Okay? God is to be loved above that. 
God is to be loved beyond the love that you have for your own life. God is to be loved beyond the love that you have for your neighbor. That's what makes this love a very unique love. The point is, love toward God is to be our greatest love. Greater, stronger than anything else. Why? Because God is totally the provider of everything that you need. We're totally dependent upon God. We're totally dependent upon His goodness toward us. He's the creator. He's the master. He's the king of all creation. We are His servants. So this love is love towards the one who is so much greater than we are. God is to be our first love. God is to be our highest love. And then we have to combine, in the language of adoration, this love with honor. Love and honor have to be completely and totally connected. We are to see that our love for God, when we adore and worship Him, is to have the highest and proper regard for God. God is to be given the greatest kind of honor. And we see this combined, this combination in David's own life, in his prayer in Psalm 18. This is what he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my stronghold. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, meaning the strength of my salvation. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. David is speaking of his love toward God. And he uses words which honor God as great. For God is his strength, his rock, his fortress, his stronghold, his shield, his salvation. He's the one who is worthy to be given all praise. Everything David says about God refers to God as so much higher and so much greater than David himself. And so David is saying, in the words of love and honor, he's totally dependent on God, the God who is able to do anything, the God who is able to do everything needed and necessary in order to save him. That's love and honor combined. Now the application is this, for adoration. We need to grab hold of this spiritually. God has saved us with this extraordinary purpose in view that we would know Him and that we would worship Him. Adoration is the beginning part of this worship. The language of adoration is love and honor intertwined. Now, in order to love God this way, though, and you understand that the force of what is said here has the force of command right? Recognize that we can't do this. We can't do this. And that's why we have to be gospel-centered. That's why we have to say, this is a noble thing the Word of God gives to us. It's even a kind of exciting thing that the Word of God gives to us. To think that we have such an extraordinary purpose to love God, to honor God this way. And the reality is, we can't work it up in ourselves. We don't have it in us. We don't. 
We have to be gospel-centered. We need all of God's grace working in us to will and to do His good pleasure, His highest pleasure, His ultimate pleasure for us. We can't do this on our own. We have to seek God's help. We have to see the cross of the Lord Jesus and the power of the cross to work in us. And so we have to pray, enable us, Holy Spirit, to give to God the honor and adoration which God so fully deserves. We have to. The recognition that adoration is the first part of worship puts us on our knees begging God for the Spirit's enabling power through the cross of Jesus to give Him the honor and glory due His name. Second question, why? Why do we adore God and God in worship? Why do we adore God? Well, to answer this, let's consider the whole Psalm 145. I want you to think about this. Psalm 145 is divided into two parts. That is to say, there's a theme that, that grabs the first part, and then there's a theme that grabs the second part. Uh, the first part would be all the way through the, the first half of verse 13. The second part would be the second half of verse 13 through 21. Each half is really sort of organized around these two big ideas. We can put it this way, so listen carefully. The first half lifts up God's majesty. The second half declares God's mercy toward his creation. Or the first half is about the magnificence of God. The second half is about the ministry of God to all that he's made. Or the first half declares God's greatness, and the second half declares his goodness to all of his creation. You can actually see about see this pattern in a, in a number of ways like this. The sovereignty of God and then his solicitude for his creation. It's incredible. But what is it all about? The first half of the psalm, David focuses upon who God is. In the second half, he focuses upon what God has done. Why do we adore God? We adore Him because of who He is. We adore Him because of what He has done for us. So adoration, in its heart of hearts, is that recognition of who God is and what God has done for His creation, especially for us who are believers. God is the King, the Creator. He takes care of His kingdom, His creation. That's why we give Him this adoration. Now, again, we, ne we need to be gospel-centered in this. We, we recognize that what David saw dimly but prophetically, we're able to see in its fullness on this side of the cross that God has spoken in these last days through His Son. We, we know Scripture bears witness, all of Scripture bears witness to Christ. We know that Christ is the full radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. And for that reason, we read these psalms like the first century Christians were taught by the apostles to read these psalms. We read them as of Jesus Christ Himself. Because Jesus taught His disciples that all are to honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, John 5. Jesus taught his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14. 
So everything David celebrates here, first century Christians were reading these psalms in this Christ-centered way. So Jesus is our great God and King. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, another word for King, to the glory of God the Father. Reminds me of a, a poet, Christian poet, who lived in the 1800s. Her name is Carolyn Noel. She adored Jesus as her God, as her creator, as her king. And, and, and her poetic words have been put to music. We sing it in, in hymn number 163. It goes this way. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him, king of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure that we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word, at his voice, creation sprang once to sight. All the angel faces, all the hosts of light, thrones and dominations, stars upon their way, all the heavenly orders in their great array, humbled for a season to receive a name from the lips of sinners until he came. Faithfully, he bore it spotless to the last, brought it back from victorious as from death he passed. And then she has this stanza of proper application. What does it mean to adore Jesus? In your hearts, enthrone Him. There, let Him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. Crown Him as your captain in temptation's hour. Let his will enfold you in its light and power. The ultimate reason why we adore God is because this great God has sent his only son, his great son, the word, the one who spoke the creation into existence, who became incarnate for us, for sinners such as we, to pay the debt we could not pay, so that upon our lips and within our hearts we would enthrone him as our captain and confess him king of glory now. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Finally, how do we worship and adore him? Three things we need to do. Three things that follow from what we said. Three things illustrated in David's words. It begins with how we think about God. We have to think about God with the right ideas and understanding. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. Note David's words. And these words reflect what David thought. He says, not just God, I will show you my God, the King. He says, not just God, but he says, my God. I will extol you, my God, the King. How could David say, my God? How could David claim that God was his God? How could David use the possessive pronoun, my, with respect to God? Because of the privileges that God has given to us as those God has redeemed to be his to be those who are his servants, those who are his saints, those who are his children, those who are called 
even into his household of faith to be his children, to be his sons. That's why David could speak of God and call him my God. And he calls him king. We must rightly think about Jesus as our king, our savior, the true king over all creation. And if Jesus is king, then we must give to him the highest loyalty that we possibly can give to anything and anyone. In adoring Jesus as our king, we are pledging allegiance to him and to his kingdom. We are confessing that his priorities take rank over everything else. And verse 3 talks about his greatness. Triple emphasis. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The word unsearchable there, the NIV says fathom, it's unfathomable. Uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses a word that says without boundary, without limit. The idea is that God has a greatness that cannot be defined. We think about him this way. All through the Psalms, we can see how David thinks about God in these ways. Verse 5, he talks about the glorious splendor of, of, of the majesty of Christ. Verse 7, the fame of God's abundant goodness. Verse 8, David even quotes Moses, really, from the law, from Exodus. God himself, Exodus 34, 6, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In all these descriptions, we see how David thought about God. What David knew of God's greatness. On this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, we see all this greatness of God in his Son, our Savior. We see the power of God in Christ, the wisdom of God in Christ, even our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. To, to adore God in Christ is to boast in the Lord, which we properly should do. That's how we're supposed to think about God. And then speaking about God, notice quickly, David uses a, a vocabulary of verbs here that, that shows that he understands what it means to really adore God in a multitude of ways. Verse 1, to extol, to bless. Verse 2, to praise, from which we get the word hallelujah. Uh, verse 3, greatly to be praised. Verse 4, to commend, to declare. Verse 5, to meditate. Verse 6, to speak. Verse 7, to pour forth and to sing aloud. Verse 10, to thank. Verse 12, to make known. The point is David has a worship vocabulary that's so active in understanding that we're to speak to God, we're to speak about God in our worship. We worship God for who he is and for what he's done. The Apostle Peter summed this up for the church. He said in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that the God who saved us, that we are to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our extraordinary purpose, to worship God in the light of his Son. And then the third part, to worship and adore God by the acts and activities of worship. Here again, David's example. In verses 1 and 2, notice that David 
is constantly and daily extolling and praising God. Practically speaking, that means David put himself into a place every day where he could actually, by himself, worship and glorify God. Second thing, verses 4 through 7, David adored his king in the fellowship and the community of other believers. That too means that David got himself into the place where the other people of God were gathering so that he could worship and glorify God with them together. He committed himself to the gathering of God's people when they came together for worship. And so we observe this about David, both his personal times. He'd set that time apart to worship God. Then the gathering times, he set that time apart to come together with God's people to praise and adore him. Both are in God's purpose for us in salvation. We're saved to worship. We're saved to worship by ourselves. We're saved to worship together. We're saved to bring Christ His proper glory. Now, conclusion. I want to finish where we began. If, as believers, we live our lives mostly on the horizontal, if we seek our purpose and the things and accomplishments of this life, we will become empty. We will become hollow. We will think our lives are in vain. But if we hold fast to this extraordinary purpose that Christ has redeemed us for, to know God, to serve God, to worship God, then every day will have purpose and meaning. So, remember the purpose. Remember the direction that the Apostle Paul has given us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. This is to live out our lives in this vertical position with an eternal purpose that every day we would conform no longer to the patterns of this world. What are the patterns of this world? The patterns of this world are living horizontally, living for the sake of the things of this life only. Rather, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as living sacrifices given over to Christ, given over to His Word, given over to His Spirit, that God, through His Word and Spirit, would lead us to understand God's will for us as worshipers. What is good, what is pleasing, and therefore what is perfect for our lives. So, what's it all about? Live for Jesus. Amen.